Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Nathan Fabian, who is the Chief Responsible Investment Officer for the Principles of Responsible Investing. Nathan, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's good to be here. Excellent. So we always start a little bit with asking about people's uh, backgrounds and careers to get a sense of, of what they've been doing so far. You've had an interesting career. You've uh, been the head of ESG research for Regnum, but also you've been an advisor to Senator Penny Wong, which sort of gives away that you're actually an Australian based in London. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? Yes, uh, I, I am indeed an Australian uh, and spent most of my professional life in Australia uh, and have, I suppose, been in the ESG and responsible investing field for getting close to 20 years now. Uh, And that work has covered uh, policy development, initially around corporate governance issues, uh, but also work developing ESG research analytics to support funds management uh, processes. Uh, And I suppose more recently, based in London, for the Principles for Responsible Investment, where we help our signatories to incorporate uh, ESG into their investment practices. So what were you doing in advising uh, Penny Wong? So that was uh, in the wake of the issues around asbestos. And we'd also had the problems uh, in Enron uh, in the US. And there was great concern around governance practices around social risks, primarily in Australia. Uh, but also uh, financial governance uh, and the sustainability of business models. And so I was advising uh, the senator on corporate governance policy approaches, mainly around transparency and reporting, but also good good governance practice that we were trying to incorporate into Australian business and investor thinking at the time. Yeah, yeah. So now you are Chief Responsible Investment Officer. What does a Chief Responsible Investment Officer do? So very simply, I support all of our signatories to be responsible investors. And I oversee a program of guidance and tools that investors can use to make sure they're incorporating ESG in their practices. But also I oversee all of our ESG issue-based work across climate change and biodiversity and water and forestry, for example, across human rights and inclusive societies and labor supply chains. uh, And of course, across good governance practice and our 
our increasing research and understanding of what good looks like in those areas. Uh, and I also oversee our active ownership, our stewardship activities with companies and our policy engagement with investors. And really by bringing this under the banner of the chief responsible investment officer, we're trying to link all of these responsible investment practices into the way our investors think as part of their day job. How do you get your head around so many different areas? Is there sort of a framework that you can apply to, to different areas or, or do you have to start from scratch for every different sector that you look at? Uh, there is a framework you can apply to different areas. And so I think for a while now, we've known that a responsible investor can have good information and can think about the risk return and environmental social uh, impacts of their work. So that's one area. We know that they can be active owners and good stewards. That's the second area. Uh, we know they can be good and available engagers on government policy as it changes in this area. And we know they can be transparent and support good data markets. So those four areas provide a good framework that we incorporate into the way we run at PRI and that we try and support all of our signatories to work. And those areas can apply across any sector in the economy and you can use them to different degrees in any asset class. Yeah. And so that's how we keep it organized and structured. Okay, okay. So today we wanted to talk a little bit as well about uh, the inevitable policy response that has uh, recently uh, been launched. Uh, it was towards the end of last year. Why is it inevitable? We started this work once we looked at some of the maths, some of the experience of how warming in the world was accelerating, but emissions were not dropping. And we came to the conclusion that this situation couldn't continue. Ultimately, the physical risks of climate that we were starting to see are expected to get worse. Uh, and we know that emissions must drop substantially. In fact, 7% year on year in order to give us a, a good chance of staying below two degrees, which we understand is a bit of a threshold for the planet. Well, in fact, not for the planet, for the humans on the planet, as we say. Yeah. And so this is really a dramatic reduction in emissions. So we came to the conclusion that if you look at trends like changing technology, the emerging policy changes in some parts of the market, if you look at the really strong and growing civil society response and the preferences of the new generation of voters coming into the, to the electorate, there's actually some pretty fundamental changes here that we think are going to cause policymakers to try and bring this problem under control. Yeah. In the UK, we like to say, get a grip on it get a grip on this problem yeah. because at the moment we don't have a grip on this problem. Yeah. And so whether or, whether or not you think in, uh, policymakers will be successful is kind of a separate question, but we do think they're going to have a go. And that's where the idea of inevitability comes from. But what do you think will force governments to, to respond? Because as you said, there's quite dramatic action and necessary. I think so far we have seen a lot of problems in, in different countries trying to agree on a joint effort in that space. But what will change? It can be hard sitting in Australia to see how politically neutral climate is as an issue in most countries of the world and how policy progress is evident. In, in almost all countries, it's really only, uh, I'd say, Australia at times. And of course, what you see in the US at a federal level, that makes us think that this is really a controversial idea. But frankly, in Europe, in the UK, in Japan, even in Canada, where there's really a heavily 
emissions intensive industry, there's general acceptance that we need to have emissions near to zero by the middle of the century. And so we're seeing quite rapid policy change in many other markets. Uh, and I think that's very important. So the things that make us fairly certain that there will be a stronger policy response, as I'm saying, is that the evidence of the policy change that is there already. So we now have over 50 countries globally with net zero by 2050 targets, for example. So, so how do you look at that? Because uh, as you said, um, when you sit here in Australia, the discussion is often quite different. And, and you're coming from Australia now being based in London, you probably also see that in London, the discussions are very different. So I, w- I was born in the Netherlands and uh, came here about 15 years ago. And I'd never seen a car with a six liter engine before because <laughs> they're just not allowed in the Netherlands. And here you see almost every tradie has one. So I think the discussion is at a very different starting point, not to mention that the whole economy is based around resources. How do, how do you look at that when you have these discussions uh, um, in different countries? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We don't expect every country to invest in local industry that will be at the forefront of the new economy. Now, Australia still has the option to do that in certain sectors. Uh, it, can, it has excellent renewable energy resources that could support industry with relatively cheap power. Now, whether or not it takes that opportunity is a really uh, still an open question, I think, for most of Australia. Yeah. Uh, but, but we're seeing the investment go in another part of the world. And so this change, these changes are coming. Uh, those leader cars are not by and large manufactured and solely for Australia. It won't be a case of the rest of the world has got electric and hybrid, but somebody out there is just making six leader cars for Australia. That's not a very efficient way to run a car business. And so <laughs> eventually Australia will be a price taker and a product taker on this unless it finds a way to change its own practices. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the electric youth, but uh, we'll see when that one comes out. So one of the most discussed trends, though, is around coal. And, and obviously, we have a lot of coal here. Um, but one of the, the partners on, on, the, on the project, on the policy response, was, uh, I think, Carbon Tracker, which also recently put out numbers around the idea that um, we've already reached peak demand for coal and that for a lot of the other fossil fuels that is coming soon, potentially even sped up by the pandemic. Uh, what's, what's your view on that? Is this um, the most uh, pertinent topic to start or, or do we have a more broader framework there for addressing fossil fuels? Yeah, I think that the market broadly, so institutional investors have broadly already made a judgment on coal. If you look at the valuations of coal assets, they've just been dropping steadily for quite some time. It doesn't mean that there won't be pockets of, of thermal coal exp- export that creates an income for a, for a few years. We, we can see that's still the case. But broadly, as a sector, uh, its sentiment is very low, I'd say, on coal for institutional investors. So it is more helpful to see this in a broader frame around fossil fuels. And I think if you look at the actions of Shell and BP, even in this past week, where they've announced major shifts in their future strategy. And in BP, in fact, just this week, has put its petrochemicals business on, on the market for sale uh, at a price of five billion pounds equivalent. And so this is a very clear reflection of a change in strategy. And 
the fossil fuels companies all have a decision to make, I think. Uh, if you're an upstream diversified fossil fuel company about where the future income is going to come from and whether you can use your balance sheet today to make that adjustment. And I think that's the real story on fossil fuels at the moment. Uh, I think on coal in Australia, it's, there's no serious view in the market that carbon capture and storage is going to be deployed for coal-based energy. And so really we're talking about exiting a legacy industry on thermal coal. And there are different views on the time frame around that, but, but given the emissions intensity, don't believe that this industry will be able to continue to harm the environment to the extent that it has, you know, much beyond the 10 to 20 year horizon and reducing year on year until then. Yeah. So it's interesting because we have had some more recent discussions here around the idea of stranded assets. And, and you just mentioned uh, um, that the, that asset was put on sale for $5 billion. To a degree, you're wondering who's going to buy that at this stage? Do you think there will be a case where more of these things will come on the market and, and we'll see uh, potentially valuations drop significantly? Well, I mean, this is interesting. There will always be smaller and more nimble businesses than BP, I guess, who want to exploit uh, the earnings from these, these industries that have demand now and can generate a return. Uh, so we do expect interest in these businesses. I think that for institutional investors, it means that some of the assets will fall out of their portfolios and that reduces the exposure of the institutional investments to these sectors, which is broadly a good thing. I think the challenge that we've got as an institutional investment community is that that doesn't take the assets out of the economy. And so you've still got just as much climate change, even if you don't have the financial risk on the transition around these assets. And so this is where the involvement of institutional investors in policy settings and in stewardship for the companies that they have to try and have a sensible transition around some of these assets. A fire sale is not necessarily going to actually be in institutional investors' interests. And so we must bear that in mind. We've got to think about transition of the sector and that requires wider engagement with companies and with policymakers around that. Uh, because institutional investors own the whole economy, they can't trade away from the climate issue, unfortunately, even if they can trade away from fossil fuels. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about valuations there already. And um, I did uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago an interview with New Zealand Super, and they have developed a framework for incorporating climate risks into their equity valuation model. And even though they thought it was a very useful exercise and made them much more aware of what certain type of risks are involved in assessing these assets. They also found that it's often quite hard to actually adjust your valuation based on these type of risk because they're relatively uncertain. And especially when you get to sort of second and third degree influences of that, it's very hard to quantify them. How do you think we can deal with those type of issues? Yeah, this is a common experience that New Zealand Super has had, and that is why we did the inevitable policy response work, which has as a component a thing called a forecast policy response. So it's moving away from this idea that if we just have a range of scenarios and a range of potential price impacts, well, that's enough. We, we know that that's not. At some point, you need to form a view. And so 
we tried to assist with Vivid Economics and Energy Transition Advisors who have been working with PRI on this project to say, well, what could this disruption look like in practice? And so we forecast a 2025 set of policy interventions across major markets with a five-year implementation period for those investments. And then we looked at all the major sectors of the economy and said, how big could the valuation impacts be? Now, the point about this work is that it provides one view of the valuation impacts. And we encourage investors to develop, a, or sorry, to incorporate an idea of an, an inevitable response as a base case. But when it comes to the actual pricing, make your own judgment. You can use what we've provided, or you can vary that based on your insights about how this might play out. The point is, make a judgment and factor that in now with some pricing uh, calls and then adjust over time. Yeah, you're basically saying give your best estimate now and you can always adjust as you go along. Exactly right. The worst thing to say is we're not going to value it. We're just going to wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> so make a call now. However you do it, uh, estimated carbon price or uh, changing your, your, your forecast earnings for a sector or some kind of climate weighting factor, whatever you do, make a call and adjust over time. Uh, as you need to because because as we say there's no escaping <laughs> that there's going to be some volatility around this issue yeah yeah absolutely now that that valuation model was mainly looking at um, equities although they, they they are expanding it i think to other asset classes as well but is it easier to do for certain asset classes uh, like equities than for others and i'm thinking particularly about sort of the time frames involved if you look at infrastructure assets, they, they sometimes have um, timeframes of like 99-year leases for ports. How do you uh, um, take that into account where potentially either the risks are different or more spread out? Yeah, so the IPR work actually did asset-level modelling and then aggregated that for equity exposure analysis. Uh, now, that won't have picked up all the infrastructure assets you're talking about, but there are other ways you can do this. And the, the easiest way is the implied cost of carbon and simply incorporate that into the forecast earnings for the asset and look at the different potential impacts of those carbon prices as a proxy for a demand impact impact on, on the uh, use of the asset. Now, I mean, some of the, some of the uh, impacts for 90-year infrastructure assets from demand destruction or, or price increase around carbon or in fact physical risks which we've also got to consider for these assets you know they really do change the prospects for these assets uh, and so this work is not technically hard to be honest the important thing is to as you said use a use a, a best assessment today look at the analysis make a judgment and then adjust over time uh, so the IPR work can help because it is comprehensive. It's a global economic model with asset, with an asset level uh, starting point. Uh, and for those other very specific long-lived infrastructure assets, it is what is possible to do the analysis as well. Yeah. Now, the policy response also includes a number of predictions on countries and, and the time frame they're facing out uh, fossil fuels. 
And we talked a little bit about Australia, but despite its economic makeup, it's still expected that Australia is one of an early phase-out country. Why is that? Yeah, so I think that the assumption is that the uh, customer or importing countries that rely on some of Australia's uh, exports will put pressure on Australia. And also some of the manufactured goods that Australia imports will be modified as a change in global markets uh, by those exporting countries. Um, in addition, the economics of this start to play out through the next decade. Uh, we can already see that the energy pricing, the energy costs on the renewable side is so low all around the world that this does start to disrupt energy supply. And so all these factors play into the Australian market, even though you're not necessarily getting the headline policy discussion in Australia. Uh, Australia will be subject to global forces, uh, global market forces especially. And so that's why we've got it rated at the start. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, of course, we are in the middle of a uh, pandemic with the coronavirus where, um, you know, it seems that everything is thrown upside down. Do you think that this message might be in danger of getting lost amongst all the turmoil that's happening? Yeah, it's interesting. You need to sort of dig below the surface on this one. There's two trends that, that we see as evident. Uh, the first is that when you're providing the solvency and employment support to companies in these early rounds of economic support, are you un underpinning business models that were already uh, under pressure because of some of these economic changes around energy and, and demand on, on uh, environmental issues? The short answer is yes, you are. And so there's a risk. Now, just today in the UK, there's talk of bailout packages for the two British steel companies, for uh, Virgin Atlantic, for Jaguar Land Rover, and of course, we're, we're all sitting here saying, well, these, these companies were under great pressure on their business models already. Are we going to be propping them up through a period where there probably should have been some impact because of, of market dynamics? The short answer to that is yes. So there's one risk that we face. I think on the other hand, or the second dimension here, is that as governments start to recapitalize their economies by either buying into the, uh, the, the capital of companies or providing incentives for investment. So going beyond solvency and uh, supporting employees, but actually growing the companies to, to stimulate the economy. There is an opportunity there to introduce environmental conditionality. And now this is being widely discussed in Europe and is part of the announced package for uh, future growth in the economy. And over, over 1 trillion euro package has got green conditionality in it. Now, how this is deployed in practice, still we, we still need to see. But the idea that uh, these either capital injections or discounted debt or whatever instrument is used should not be applied to activities which have an increased emissions footprint or that extend the, the life of existing high emissions assets, that idea is actually being talked about very seriously. But then so you've got these two dynamics. So we're at a really important moment here. Are we accelerating the climate transition in the economy? Or are we propping up companies that we're gonna to have to unwind anyway 
in the future unless they can radically change their business models. So there's a really important crossroads here for policymakers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because we have seen here suggestions as well that that perhaps we should uh, put a lot of effort in speeding up the transition in Australia to renewable energy because it can create a lot of jobs here as well, especially now with unemployment having increased. And I suppose that's also the, the other side of the coin where as we are switching and as we're moving away from the fossil fuel uh, uh, energy generation, that there is more opportunity for innovation and new companies and sectors and technologies will uh, appear. And that, of course, also is uh, an opportunity for, for investing. What are your thoughts and what do you see around you in, in terms of thinking around opportunities for investments? Yeah, so the, the idea that uh, renewable energy, low carbon component manufacture, uh, best practices in agriculture, forestry, the idea that we need these as part of our economy is not new. We understand these sectors. We understand that we need them to be bigger as part of our portfolios as investors. So that part of the opportunity story is actually quite clear. It's a question of scale. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to help investors understand what these markets like might look like in future and where they will grow. There's this interesting kind of mythology in a way around green transition that you have to come up with these as yet unproven technologies that are going to somehow radically transition our economies and that these ideas are all still in the lab. Well, that's possible, I suppose, as an idea, but it's not what we need now in the economy. Most of the opportunities are there. They exist in all sectors of the economy. You can even have very uh, emissions efficient cement, uh, steel, uh, glass manufacture. These technologies are available. So working with the companies in these sectors to make sure that the new capital is going towards these levels of environmental performance is what the main game is. Yeah. In addition to, you know, to, to uh, wind powered energy and solar. And I suppose also in the efforts to make them more efficient and more cost effective. Well, that's right. That exactly. That is the advantage. Uh, and as demand becomes uh, affected for emissions intensive assets and costs increase on these business models. And of course, it's a wider story. I mean, the gas industry is really an important one to Australia. But in, the, in, in Europe, we're talking about how, well, how do you set up a gas distribution network that's going to support hydrogen in future? So that there is actually a transition pathway for this sector because we can't have unabated gas for 30 years. We're going to blow our emissions budget. And so we need a transition pathway even on gas. And so plastic pipes are the order of the day because you can transition them to to uh, hydrogen. And so that's not a technological innovation. Yeah, yeah. So we, we talked a lot about energy, but um, if governments are taking up stricter uh, policies towards this, what, what other sort of sectors do you expect to benefit from this move? Yeah, so we think that land use is really overlooked. And in, uh, in Australia, I think the experience has been it can be hard to invest in. Uh, but it's pretty clear that... Uh, forestry sectors, agriculture sectors. Uh, this is, and, and of course, the impl implication these sectors have for biofuels. So the ute that you were talking about earlier probably won't be electric at the start, but it probably will be biofuels. Right. And so 
the, the question is what do the dynamics in these sectors play out like there's we expect a lot of change in this sector and a lot of incentivization into this sector from governments so that that one's really important to note because we're so far behind on our land-based issues around climate yeah uh, man, manufacturing has enormous opportunities uh, we've got a whole economy to retool with energy efficient and low carbon componentry and so we see enormous opportunities in manufacture uh, and of course, I think the transport sector is the one that's now getting real attention from governments with uh, internal combustion engine, phase out years, uh, phase out pathways and uh, years for ending sales of new internal combustion engines. And in, in Europe, these are in the 2030s and early, you know, we're only literally 10 years away from phasing out internal combustion engines yeah. in Europe. So these are the sectors that have significant opportunity and they're sectors that we understand. We just need to know what level of uh, emissions in energy performance is consistent with these net zero pathways. Yeah. Yeah. So you've now launched the policy response. What's, what's next? What are the next steps? So we meet with uh, asset owners. That's the key step now support the asset owner community to understand how they would manage this volatility period so that they can start to incorporate this. An example of this, I think we saw in Australia last week where HESTA announced that they were going to align the portfolio with a net zero 2050 pathway. Yep. And that is going to lead them to a range of uh, active ownership or stewardship, um, divestment, uh, new allocation decisions and mandate decisions to try and align that portfolio so that they're well, they're ready when that volatility period comes uh, as we see policy signals tighten. So that's the number one priority for now. So it's mainly conversations with, with uh, institutional investors who, who actually you know, have some power behind them to uh, speed this thing up. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, the primary objective of PRI is to support investors to incorporate these issues in the interest of their ultimate beneficiaries. That's why we, we have this organisation called Principles for Responsible Investment. So that's where we're sending our our primary effort. I suppose the second area where we're working here is with governments to help understand what they have to do beyond the, the current political term and sort of building the expertise and thinking about, uh, about this and also playing back what investors are starting to think about because governments reasonably want to know that they're going to be able to support employment, that they're going to be able to support economic activity. They want a soft landing uh, as much as the investors do. Yeah. And so the more we think about what this pathway can look like, we get hopefully better decisions on how to manage it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some work ahead still. Well, Nathan, thank you very much for joining us today. And it was great talking to you. I hope that it all goes well. Thanks, Art. It's good to talk to you as well. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com Thank you very much.